Welcome to the podcast of First Baptist Church in Wilson, Oklahoma, preaching the weekly teaching and preaching ministry of the church. We are grateful that you are choosing to join us today. Our prayer is that you are blessed by today's study of God's Word, and your heart will be receptive to what God desires to teach you today. For more information about FBC Wilson, please visit our website at fbcwilson.org. We hope you enjoyed today's service, and we look forward to studying God's Word with you today. It's good to see each and every one of you here this morning. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope that you do, you join me in Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3. When you come in, there's always bulletins on each one of those tables. If you want to get one of those bulletins on the back of that, there'll always be notes. Um, if you want to follow along as we study through God's Word this morning. So Mark chapter 3 is where we're going to pick, off, pick up from where we left off. A couple weeks ago, as we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, I appreciate you, Greg, and those that serve with you in leading us in worship, and thank you, Miss Camber, wherever you went, for uh, doing the announcements, her and Aaliyah, um, and just to make sure that we're on the same page tonight during the evening service at 6, um, we're just going to, as a pastor team, present a proposed budget and talk about finances and, and planning for um, the 2024 year, and then... Next Sunday at 6 p.m. is when we'll have um, the yearly church um, business meeting. And so just if you want to come and be a part of that, you are welcome to come and be a part of that. It's a time where we get to rejoice about what God is allowing us to be a part of here in Wellston. So those things are coming up. Mark chapter 3, um, we're going to pick it up in a few moments there in verse 22 and go all the way down to the end of the chapter. Last, uh, last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, we were talking about how sometimes Mark is presenting Christ through different lenses. And one of the things that he showed us a couple weeks ago is how uh, Mark is presenting Christ as either you're going to have Christ or chaos. And so when you think about this world that we're living in, it pretty much comes down to a simple formula. Either you're going to have Christ and the peace and the calmness and the hope and all of those things that come with him, or you're going to have the chaos of the world trying to bring up its own ideas, trying to bring up its own solutions, and trying to solve all of its own problems. And so a couple weeks ago, we were talking about and showing in Mark how he said either it's Christ or it's chaos. This morning, I want to build off of that, and I want us to consider for a few moments how Mark is going to present the picture of Jesus this morning as either Christ or confusion. Last week, um, Jalen and I's oldest son, Eli, turned 16. And for whatever reason, in a 16-year-old mind, a bicycle is not enough transportation anymore. So, we have found ourselves in a season, him and I, a season of looking at vehicles. So, some of you enjoy doing this, like a Matt Whitney, they enjoy buying and selling. I, I just can't stand it. I, I just don't like it at all. But, but we're in that season right now where you are looking at different classifieds and different advertisements, and you look at the pictures, and you look at the description, and you're going back and forth and back and forth. And what, what, what you will see if you spend very much time doing this is it's all about angles. How they take the picture, <laughs> the lighting, the direction, and then the words, on the words they use to give the description, like you will see some listings and they'll say, slight cosmetic damage. 
Well, that can be a lot of different things depending on who's the one taking the picture and who is the one writing the article, writing the advertisement. Are you following me so far? So one of those things that you can sometimes get caught up in is you can get caught up in being deceived by the angles and the words. So here in Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 22 and going down, Mark is going to give us some different angles to see Christ. He's been presenting Jesus. He's been presenting Jesus to the church. He's been, pre been presenting Jesus to the world and saying, this is Jesus Christ. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you why he is the answer. And let me tell you why you should be excited about him. So he's been doing this. He's been doing this from different perspectives, different angles, different points of view. This morning he's going to give us another piece, if you will, another part to the story of saying, here are the different angles by which you can see Jesus that just continue to show illuminate, highlight, flavor of who he is. So he picks it up here in the gospel, verse 22. If you think about what's happened up until this point, Jesus has set apart the 12. The family showed up there in verse 21. <clears throat> so a little confusion going on about who Jesus was. Well, let's just pick it up in verse 22 and dive right in. It says in verse 22, And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he cast out demons. So immediately you get there, and as Jesus is on the scene, as Jesus is beginning his earthly ministry, there are those, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, those of the more established, traditional vein, and they start trying to come up with how are we going to explain the things that Jesus is doing. If you think up to this point in Mark chapter 3, starting from Mark 1 all the way to where we're at right now, Jesus has done multiple things. Not only has he cast out demons from people, but he's also healed people, numerous people, many people has he healed. And so there was a certain number of people that were trying to come up with an explanation. How do we explain what is going on? How do we explain who this guy is? How do we come up with an answer for these things? So it says in verse 22, the scribes, this would be the religious leaders, the religious teachers, they came down from Jerusalem and their explanation was, he is possessed by Beelzebul. I have never met a person named Beelzebul. Maybe for good reason. Beelzebul was a name given to a pagan god. Some of your study Bibles, some of maybe if you have a Schofield, it'll tell you about who Beelzebul was. There's, there's a little bit of confusion. Some commentators think it was one of the Philistines' gods. Some of people think that it was another name for the god of Baal, which was a, a false god of the Egyptians. In other words, what the religious leaders are saying when they're coming down and they're saying, Jesus is doing this by the power of the demonic, by the power of the pagan, that is how Jesus is doing that. Well, what Mark is going to do is Mark is going to show us this first angle. And this first angle that Mark wants to show us is, is that he is, Jesus is, Christ is, he is God. That's what, that's what Jesus came on the scene. Jesus came on the scene and said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. He gets baptized. The spirit comes upon him and God speaks from heaven. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We get this reminder in this picture all throughout the gospels that you have this Trinitarian picture presented. You have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So when Jesus shows up on the scene, he is not saying, I am the God the Father figure, but I am God in the flesh. So all these religious leaders were questioning and saying, no, he's doing this by demonic powers. He's doing this by demonic spirits. And that's why they say in verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebub and the prince of demons, he cast out demons. 
So in verse 23, Jesus decides to answer their charge. And it says in verse 23, and he called them to him. And he said to them in parables. Now, if you're willing to write in your Bible, if you're willing to highlight in your Bible, if you're willing to underline your Bible, you just need to look at that word parables. And you need to circle it. You need to underline it. You need to put a square around it. Because Jesus is going to use that method of parables all throughout Scripture. Now, I know some of you have heard this before, but some of you may have not. What is a parable? A parable is a spiritual or an earthly story with a spiritual principle. What Jesus would do in the way that they hear speakers today, they will use illustrations or they'll use metaphors or they'll use something to try to communicate. What Jesus was doing with parables, he was just simply giving them an earthly story that had a spiritual principle with it. So here in the text, as Mark shows us, he's reminding us, he's showing us this angle, how Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus does this with three parables. You look down there at verse 23, down through verse 28, and there's three parables that Jesus gives. Then, starting in this place, all throughout the rest of the gospel of Mark, he's going to continue to teach in parables. This is the first place where Jesus begins to teach in parables. Notice the three parables that he gives them. Verse 23, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. That's the first parable. <clears throat> Second parable, and if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. Third parable, verse 26. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first finds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. There is the third parable. And you say, well, Spence, what do all three of these parables mean? Well, I submit to you this morning that he is giving us three parables, but he's giving us two principles. Look back at the text, if you would, and, and see if you can see these with me. He asked the question up there in verse 25 or verse 24, how can Satan cast out Satan? In other words, he's saying that the first principle to the parable is that Satan cannot cast out Satan. Satan would be destroying himself. Satan would be working against himself. Satan would be defeating his own purposes. So as Jesus is giving the answer, he gives them this principle. Satan is not going to counteract the things that Satan is trying to do. But the second principle he shows them down there in verse 27, he says, But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first binds a strong man. So he gives them these three principles to teach, or these three parables to teach two principles. Principle number one, Satan is not going to work and destroy Satan. Secondly, Satan is not more powerful than God. That's what he says there in verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his good unless he first finds a strong man's. Translation, if Jesus is doing all these miraculous works through demonic powers, then that means that he has bound the authority and the sovereignty and the power of God and he is able to work apart from God. Translation, Jesus says, if Satan was more powerful than God then that would make Satan God. Are you tracking? So the people were saying, Jesus is doing these things under the power of the demonic. And Jesus says, you are missing the point. The point is that there is only one explanation to how and the way I am able to do these miraculous things, and that is that I am God in the flesh. 
So he's using this to show them the fallacy of their own argument. And he's showing this to say, and that's what Mark's giving us this angle. Mark is saying, this is God. And if he's not God, then what is he? Either he is God or he is a matter of confusion. He is a matter of contradiction. He is a matter of counterfeit. Either this is God or what else are we going to why do I make such a big deal out of this? Because this question is not just bound in the pages of Mark chapter 3. This is a question that you and I deal with on a regular basis. Either he is the Son of God, Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the only hope that we have for forgiveness of our sins and justification in the eyes of God. Either he is that Or we're wasting our time here this morning. Preacher, I agree with you. He is that. Then that means that he is now the Lord of our lives to then which he then directs us, guides us, dictates. We are now submission, submissive and obedient to him. Either he is the Messiah or he is not. There are too many professing Christians in the church today that are waffling back and forth between the two. Either he is or he isn't. And that's a challenge that you and I have to face every single day. Either he's God or he's not. Either he's my Lord or he's not. Either I'm obedient or I'm not. Either I'm going to submit or I'm not. Either I'm faithful or I'm not. I'm either authentic or not. I'm right or I'm not. Now in our humanity, we want to have all kinds of wiggle room. Spence, I'd like to have a little gray area, please. I'd like to have a little bit of uh, softness, Spence. But may, may I kind of have, a, may I have a, a door number three and option number C, if you will. But the reality is, as Mark says, here is how simple it gets. Jesus was doing these things saying, I am God in the flesh. Religious leaders are like, no, he's not. You don't have to listen to him. You don't have to pay attention to him. We will come up with our own explanations. And yet Mark is saying either he is or he's not. If he's not, then you get to decide what is right and wrong for you. You get to decide how many genders there are. You get to decide what your name is going to be. You get to decide why you exist. You get to decide what is right or wrong for you. If he is not, then you are your own authority. But if he is, then those decisions of autonomy and authority and morality and what is right and wrong and what is true and false and what is good and bad and what is holy and what is profane, those have all been made for us. So you look there at the bottom of your notes if you have your bulletin on the back of that, on the, on the bottom of that page. You see there the little hashtag symbol. So really what it comes down to is what that little hashtag says. What does the Bible say? 
Because really, at the end of the day, it's either Christ or confusion. Either you're going to submit to Christ, and you're going to submit yourself to the lordship of Christ, and you're going to follow the way and the walk of Christ, or you will then lead to confusion. So really, the question is not, what do you think? What do I think? How do you feel? How do I feel? What are we going to collectively decide as a, as a gaggle or a gathering? It doesn't matter to us. Well, all that matters is, what does the Bible say? Or... He is not God. So what Mark does here in verse 22 through 27, he gives us that angle. This is who God in the flesh is. And it brings you and I to the point to have to ask ourselves a question. And it's not just a question today. It's going to be a question that we're going to have to answer tomorrow. It's going to be a question that we're going to have to answer next week. It's going to be a question that's going to go on in your family, in your extended family, in your workplaces, in our society, in our culture. Who is Jesus? Either Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, God in the flesh, or he's an imposter. So Mark says... He is God. Well, there's another challenge that was then brought against Jesus. And that is, how is he doing the work and, why, and, and the means by way he's doing the work and even the motivation for doing the work. So if you look down there in verse 26, or sorry, verse 28, Jesus goes on. And so Mark is going to say, not only is he God, but there's another angle that Mark wants to show this, and that is that he is not only is he God, God in the flesh, the second part of the Trinity, but he, talking about Jesus, he is hope. So what does Jesus do? Jesus is still talking here in verse 28, and he says, Truly I say to you, all sins, again, if you don't mind marking, if you don't mind underlining, if you don't mind putting a mark in your Bible, circle that, underline that, put a square about that. All in the original language means all. It means everything. It means totally. It means anything that you can imagine. All means all. And I think this is really significant considering what he's going to say next. All sins will be forgiven the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. What does Jesus say? Jesus just made a declarative statement saying, because he is the Christ, because he is the Messiah, because he is the Son of God, and because he is fulfilling the purpose God sent him for, all sins of humanity, all sins of the children of man, all sins will be forgiven even the blasphemies they utter. Now, some people are going to get tripped up because <coughs> you're going to see this word blasphemies at least two different times in the text. And people will say, well, what is blasphemy? And they'll come up with all these different definitions. Let me give you the Spence definition. You may have your own definition, and I'm sure it's probably better than mine. But let me just give you the Spence definition. Blasphemy just means slander, to lie about, to defame, to, dis to disbelieve. It's the idea that Ron Whitney tells me that Fords are the best trucks in the world, and I go, that is silly. Fix or repair daily. That's what it means. What have I been doing? I have been blaspheming Henry Ford, right? I disbelieve. I am discounting. I am being slanderous against. I am speaking ill of, and even in Mr. Ron's righteous, holy opinion, I am incorrect, that's called blasphemy. How does that relate to where we're at? 
Well, there was people that were saying, this is the Messiah, this is the Christ. And there were those people going, no way, Jose. I know his earthly daddy, and I know his mama, and I know his brothers and sisters. And I, had, I was with him in preschool, and I was with him in grade school, and I was with him in middle school, and I was with him in high school. I lived down the street from him. There is no way that is the guy. There was all these people that had questions. They had disbelief. They were like, are you sure? We don't know. We thought it was going to be like this. There were all these questions. Jesus looks at him and says, I am the hope. Now notice back up there in verse 28. He gives us the the problem. And the problem is that humanity sins against God. That's why he says, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven. Jesus is already uh, assuming that they understand that they have sinned against God. Romans 3 talks about all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6 talks about the wages of sin is death. It's this idea that everybody has sinned against God. So what has humanity done? Humanity has sinned against God by rebelling what he has told us, what he has directed us, his commandments and his mandates for our lives. So we have sinned against God. What has that done? That has caused a separation between us and God. My sin, your sin, my disbelief, your disbelief has separated me from God. So what did God do? God loved me so much that he sent his son to die for me so that he could pay the price for my sin so that I can be forgiven of my sin. So you see there in your notes, humanity sins against God, but God provides hope through forgiveness. How does he provide the hope through forgiveness? Jesus Christ. That is how he provides hope. So when Jesus, when Jesus, my language, not his, when he says, I am hope, he says, all these sins will be forgiven, even whatever they blasphemies, even whatever blasphemies they utter. He is saying, do you not understand? You have been separated from God by your sin, but I am here because God loved you so much to provide a way for you to be forgiven. But I can already see in some of your faces You've read verse 29, and you're like, oh, Spence, so what are you going to do with that? Well, Spence, you seem like you're missing something. Oh, Spence, you obviously haven't studied your Bible this week because he says in verse 29, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. Hold up a second. Now, I graduated from Wilson High School, but... Verse 28, Jesus said, all sin will be forgiven. Verse 29, he says, there will be sin that isn't forgiven. So which is it? Which is it? Is there all sin is forgivable? Or is all sin forgivable except these ones? Let me put it another way. Is there such a thing as the unpardonable or unforgivable sin? Historically, the Catholic Church taught that suicide was an unforgivable sin. And the reason why they considered it an unforgivable sin is because when you committed suicide, it was a sin and you never had time to be absolved of your sin through the absolution, I think, I'm I'm probably mispronouncing that, or or, or the work of the priest on your behalf. So you died in your sin. And so they would see that, that suicide was an unforgivable sin. Well, Spence, I have read in the newspapers, you know, there's this vile, wicked criminal that preys on small children and does unspeakable things. I am sure there is no way that God can forgive him. Well, preacher, I know there's these 
Sooner fans out there, and I'm sure that in their lost state, there's no way that God could ever forgive them. I mean that jokingly, but there's questions that we have, is there not? All sins are forgivable, or all but sins are forgivable. So what is he saying? What Jesus is telling us here in the text is that all sins will be forgiven. He says that in verse 28. Oh, but in verse 29, he says, whoever blasphemy against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. So what does that mean? What Jesus is teaching us is that all sins are forgivable, but in order for those sins to be forgiven, there is an essential element that we have to express, and that is belief. God provides the hope through forgiveness. Humanity's part is to believe. You're saying that there are sins that aren't forgivable? Yes, it is when I choose, I blaspheme the Holy Spirit. I say the Holy Spirit does not exist. God the Father does does not exist. God the Son does not exist. I do not believe in the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that I need to be saved. I do not believe that I am separated from God. I don't believe I will die in my sin. And I will spend an eternity in hell. May I, can I be forgiven of my disbelief? Yes. How? Believe. There are seasons of life that people look and they go around and they're like, there's no way that God could be in charge. There's no way there could be a God. And they have all these questions and they have all these doubts. And then later, by, later in life they come by faith to believe in God and who he said he was and Jesus and who God said he was and the Holy Spirit and who God said he was. And they come to that point in their life, they believe that their only hope and their only help is found in Jesus and the forgiveness of God because of the work that Christ has done on the cross. And then they believe. And they're forgiven. What is the sin that leads you and I to hell? Not believing in God. Allergy season always hits people differently. Sometimes when it comes to allergy season, some people are quick to run to the cabinet. They go to the medicine cabinet and they find the, they find the antihistamines and they find this, all this other stuff. And you, and you will find them self-medicating themselves. And they'll, and they'll be taking all this medicine because of their allergies, because of flares. But, you know, in the reality, what they're doing is they're not dealing with the allergy. They're dealing with the symptom of the allergy. They're taking medicine that then dries up their nasal passages. It's not because they have addressed the allergy. They haven't addressed the problem, and that is the allergy and the effect it's having on their body. What they've done is they've decided to mask the problem. they decided to mask the symptoms of the problem. they decided to hide those things so that they don't realize that their body is still being afflicted by the allergy. Sometimes we do that with our sin. My guilt, my conscience, my shame, I think I'm going to hide it. I think I'm going to mask it. I feel guilty because I didn't do something, so then I think, well, I'll give, I'll, I'll give, genero- I'll, I'll give generously. You, you cut off somebody. I don't know if they still do this anymore because I don't really go to those places. Um, but Walmart used to be in front of Walmart. You, this time there, you always had the guy with the Salvation Army, the, the sorry, male or female, from the Salvation Army. You're sitting there, they'd be ringing the bell. So you'd have somebody, and they'd be in the Walmart parking lot during this time of the year, and oh, oh, Jesus is the reason. And then they'd get really mad because they want that certain parking spot that was five feet closer to the front door. And so they'd cut somebody off trying to find that parking spot. And then they'd get out, and they would feel guilty. So then they'd put 15 cents in the bucket as they walked in the door, and they'd feel better about themselves. 
Well, they're, what they're doing, they're masking. They're masking the symptom. They're masking the problem. They're not dealing with what it is. <clears throat> what Jesus is saying here in the text is that he is the hope. We are not going to mask the problem or the symptoms with possessions. We're not going to mask the symptoms or the problems with more money. We're not going to mask the symptoms or the problems with more popular opinion from people. We're not going to mask the symptoms and the problems of these things with success in the world or ease of life or convenience or giving God a tip of the half and just coming to church on Sunday morning and that's it. It's not a matter of you and I trying to mask the symptoms or the problems. The question is, is what are we doing? with our relationship to God because at the end of the day the biggest question you're going to answer in your life is what are you going to say to God and it doesn't matter how old you are in this room it doesn't matter about your experience it doesn't matter about your ethnicity it doesn't matter about your background it doesn't matter about your education it doesn't matter how many zeros you have in your bank account it doesn't matter how many square foot your house is it doesn't matter how many days you've spent sitting in this room it doesn't matter the only question that really matters is when you stand before God what are you going to say to God Jesus says that is why it is so essential that you believe in me because, verse 30, they were saying he has an unclean spirit. They were going around and they were maligning Jesus and they were, they were maligning the work of Christ. And they were saying, you know what, we don't listen to him. We don't have to do anything. And Jesus says, oh, this is a really big deal. Not only am I God in the flesh, but I am the hope you've been waiting for. I am hope. Well, then Jesus turns a corner. I shouldn't say Jesus. Mark turns a corner in his, in his gospel. In verse 31, he, he shows us a different part of this. So in verse 31, the story continues, and it says, And his mother, talking about Jesus, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This wasn't the first time they had come seeking him. If you look back up in the text to verse 21, his family had come and trying to seek him. There was a whole confusion in the family with what's going on with Jesus. Yeah, we knew Jesus grew up, and yeah, we knew Jesus there. But Mark 6 tells us that he had more than just one brother and one sister. He had multiple siblings. We assume all fathered by his earthly father, Joseph. So they are more like half-brothers and half-sisters, if you will. But the, the idea, the, 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 the type of the text is that Jesus is doing these works, and his family is confused. Their family is like, we don't know what's going on with him. We don't know what he's saying. We don't know what he's doing. And there's all these questions about what is going on. There's all kinds of confusion. So they come to me, come to him again in verse 32. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. In verse 33, Jesus looks at them and he answered them and he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. I submit to you this morning that Mark wants to show us these angles. He shows us the angle of how Jesus Christ is God. He shows us the angle how Jesus Christ is the hope, the hope of this world, the only hope that we have. But then the third angle he shows us is that Jesus is enough. That he is enough. Where do you get that from, Spence? Well, just... Track with me here for the next few moments. He's there inside the house. The crowd is gathered around him. 
the family is outside saying, hey, we need to talk to him. We need to figure out what is going on. We have questions about, and I'm just ad-libbing here. This is just my opinion. I'm not trying to add this in the text, but they have questions about his sanity. They have questions about his mental health. They have questions about his emotional state. They have questions about his future. They have questions about where he stands with the religious leaders in the synagogue. They have questions about, you're saying some things that are really radical. You're saying some things that are not popular. You're saying some things that people do not like. And was causing problems in the family. So what does Jesus do? He answered them in verse 33 and he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now Bible commentators have used this as an example to think and to summarize that Joseph, his earthly father, has most likely already died. He's already off of the scene by this season of life. Jesus probably is 31, maybe 32 years old, probably most likely 30, maybe 31 years old. Joseph already died, but his brothers and sisters are there. And so they come to him. He looks at those that are gathered around him and said, let's answer the question. Who is my family? Now that would have been very alarming in that setting for several reasons. Number one, your family in that context, first century Jerusalem, first century Israel, family in that context determined your beliefs. The beliefs of your parents, the beliefs of your grandparents, the beliefs of your forefathers. You see, in the Old Testament where you had geographical regions where people in that geographical region because of the tribes and because of the clans and because of the family lineage that you had these people and they had always worshipped this pagan deity or always worshipped that pagan deity. And so you had people that had grown up with a religion and with a set of beliefs not determined by what they were taught by the way they were brought Which is why Matt Whitna likes driving Ford trucks, because he was brought up believing. So you had these families. And so in that context and in that setting, your family, your family surroundings, your biologic here, your physical family determined your beliefs. But not just that. If you think about it, in that context in which Jesus is speaking, your family instilled your identity. Who you were, not just what you believed, but who you were was based upon your family. My last name, McConnell. You go back to the northern Europe side, Muck is the prefix that says son of. So if you go back enough generations, I have some long-distant great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather that his last name was actually Connell. But then he had a child, and they named the child McConnell, meaning son of Connell. And so that identity then gets passed down and passed down. There are some in this room that you were brought up, and when you were a child, you would know the families by their last name. And you would hear of a new family in town, and you would already assign an ethnicity, a background, a heritage, a traditions, a set of beliefs. You would look at those individuals and say, oh, those are the Germans. Oh, those are the Bohunks. Oh, those are the South Americans. Oh, they are there. And we had, we had all of these different pockets of people. Why? Because our families instilled in us an identity. And I'm not saying any of that's bad. And I'm not saying that any of that's wrong. But here in the context, as Jesus is looking around in verse 32 and verse 33, his family is at the door saying, we want to talk to you. So Jesus is going to answer the question. And he's going to say, let's just decide in this new kingdom that is being brought forth, who is my family? 
Verse 34. And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my brothers and my sisters. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that the family does not determine beliefs. The family does not instill your identity in the eyes of God. But that your faith defines your family. That your faith defines your family. Did I move wrong? I moved wrong. It's that Ford God up there, isn't it? <laughs> He's mad. He's mad. Been picking on him. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Ron. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, so, and some of you are like, ah, what does he mean by this? Where is he going with this? It can be easy for us in this world to identify ourselves by the tribe that we are affiliated with. And it's easy for us to identify ourselves based upon our last name or based upon the area that we grew up in or our community or, 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 our, or our vocation or, or whatever the case may be. What Jesus is trying, trying to remind us is, is that he is enough. He's enough for the family of God. He's enough to give us brothers and sisters in Christ. He's enough to give us a support system and an identity so that we can then be known more by who we are in Christ than who we are in the eyes of the world. It's the the idea that Mark is saying, do not forget who this guy is. He is God, he is hope, and he is enough. If you are being thinking to yourself, you know what, I've got to leave these friends and I've got to leave this family aside because obedience to Jesus means that I make decisions that aren't popular. Yeah, he's enough for that. You mean I'm going to then decide that I'm going to do what is right even though that I'm going to do what is then criticized and what is characterized and what is Shunned. Yeah, 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 yeah. He's enough for that. You mean when I put Jesus first more than grandma? That's okay. Yeah, yeah. He's enough for that. And I know there's faces in this room. But you've had to make a decision. Faith or family. And the question has come, if I choose faith, I might forfeit my family. And that's a difficult decision to make. But my encouragement to you and I this morning is that Jesus is enough. He says in verse 35, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. And if you haven't been in that situation before, where you've had to question faith or family, I warn you, the day is coming. The time is coming. When what is wrong will be called right. What was right will be called wrong. And if you choose to say what is right, you will be wrong. And that time will come. The time is here. And there is no assurance that I can give you that the time will not come to your own house and to your own family. And in no way am I advocating or encouraging meanness, hard-heartedness, unchrist-likeness, unloving. And in no way am I encouraging you to go out and ban and banish and have nothing to do. In no way am I encouraging you or I 
to ostracize, blackmail, mark, exclude. None of that. But the time may be coming, if the time has not already come, that you will have to choose your faith or your family. What Jesus says is that he is enough. And the family of faith is enough. He says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So then what does that mean for us? Where does that leave us as a church? Mark is writing this, and I've told you all throughout here that he's giving us a message. He's relaying to us a message that we then can go out and to tell people around this community about who Jesus is. And especially as we enter into this Advent season, it is such a great opportunity for us to consider, okay, so what is the message that we tell people? I can go around and I can walk down the street and I can say it's either Christ or confusion. But without context, how are they going to know what I'm saying? So what are some things that Mark is showing us that we can then go out and deliver to a world based upon what Mark is saying here in the text. The first one I want you to see with me is that the Christ has come. That Christ has come. That is what Emmanuel means. God with us. It's this idea that when we come to this Advent season, what are we celebrating? We're not celebrating the Hutherville. We're not celebrating the Island of Misfit Toys. We're not celebrating Miracle on Second Street. We're not celebrating these things that are good and have their place. What we're celebrating is that God has sent His Son, that Christ has come to us. This coming Saturday is going to be the uh, town Christmas parade. It'll be an opportunity. We're going to have a float. The church is going to have a float. If you want to be a part of the float or you want to ride on the float, get with Miss Jenna and Mr. Jimmy after the service, and they're going to go over some details of what that Christmas float looks like. But what is going to be going on? The idea that we get to come through Main Street and we get to proclaim Jesus has come. We get to exclaim that. We get to proclaim that. We get to celebrate that, that Christ has come. And that's a message. And so here in Mark, he is saying, the Christ has come. He is God in the flesh. He is hope. He is enough. So we have a message to the world. Christ has come. But there's another message. There is hope. We are in a world that is consumed with cope. C-O-P-E. And are lacking hope. H-O-P-E. What's the difference, Spence? Well, cope is what I do to just try to get by to get to the next day. Cope is what I do when I'm looking for something else to numb the problems of my life. Cope is what I do when I hide or I withdraw or I isolate myself or I stop talking or I just get away from the situation. Cope is what I do when I don't have an answer to the biggest problem of my life. Hope is not found in my intelligence, my abilities, my self-worth, my good deeds, my possessions, my money. Hope is found in Jesus. And we 
have an opportunity as a church to say, your hope is not in a donkey or an elephant. Your hope is not in a political party. Your hope is not in a prescription. Your hope is not in legislation. Your hope is not in a school district. Your hope is not in a ball field. Your hope is not in a showborn. Your hope is not in yourself. Your hope is not in the calendar. Your holy hope is Jesus. And we have an opportunity as a church to proclaim that and exclaim that to a watching world. Why? Because that is who Christ says he is. Christ has come. There is hope. But then there's another message. You have a family. For those that know my personal side, I'm the oldest of six. I'm the oldest of six. I've got a brother that has four. I've got another brother that has 12. I've got another brother that has three. And I've got a sister that has five. So when you gather together on what I call Crazy Hill, which is otherwise known as my parents' house, when you gather up there on Crazy Hill, it's, it's a busy place. There's a lot of things going on. And growing up for many, many years, my my father was one of five. And my grandparents on my father's side had 35 grandkids and even more great-grandkids than that. And it was always a big tradition on Christmas Eve. Everybody finds a way to pile into my grandparents' house. And on Christmas morning, it is not unusual to have seen 60 to 75 people all gather trying to figure out how to open presents at the same time. It is a busy, busy place. So it's hard for me to try to imagine when I hear statistics, especially in the church and especially from secular sources, when I hear statistics talk about that this time of the year is the loneliest time for people. And it's not because I, I, I'm dismissive and it's not because I don't care and it's not because I, I, I think they're lying or they're, or they're being wrong. It's just because I have nothing to relate to. And yet, year after year and year after year, I, I, I see these statistics and I hear these people and they're referencing about how this season can be one of the most loneliest seasons for people. I don't suppose and I don't propose that I have some secret answer. But I do think that we can be reminded this year that regardless of the size, larger or smaller your family, when we're in here, we have a family. We have a church family. We have men and women, boys and girls that are around us that are required to love us whether they like us or not. We get to come in here and people are expected to smile. People are expected to say, it is good to see you even if they're lying. And you have a place that comes in here that we can be free from all of the encumbrances and all of the weights of all of the lies that are outside these walls. We can come in here and when we get in here, we can be a family. And what an opportunity is for you and I to be able to go outside these walls and to find those individuals that this is the loneliest time of the year. This is the season when they are the most struggling. And to be able to look at them and say, I have hope for you. There is a family of God that is waiting for you. What a privilege and an opportunity that God has allowed us and commissioned us to give that message to other What about you? 
what is your message going to be this month? Is your message going to be telling people how Jesus is the Christ? He is the Messiah. He is God. He is hope. He is enough. Christ has come. There is hope in Him. Or are we going to spend this month buying presents for people that they don't need? Spending money on things that we don't have? Trying to please people? That may not be pleasable. Are we going to spend this time focused on Jesus? You bow your heads with me. Thank you for joining us today at FBC Wellston. We would love to hear from you or connect with you if you will visit our website at fbcwellston.org. Please let us know if we can serve you in any way, and we look forward to connecting with you in the future.